Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And you've been listening to a selection of music from Great Voices number 14, which gives to 2014, and that's Great Voices put together by Chris Gaffney, and hopefully Chris will be back with us pretty soon. It's just after four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. Today on the program, when Victoria Police officers shot Anzac veterans. I'll be speaking with Kevin Bracken, former Secretary, Victorian Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia. Place to be this evening at 6.30 if you can be in Richmond. You'll hear from Debbie Brennan for the Campaign Against Fascism and Racism. One of the key speakers at the recent IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australian Network National Conference held here in Melbourne, was barrister and human rights activist James O'Neill. He'll be hearing his speech at the conference. Crisis Times in Venezuela. Activist and writer Coral Winter is back from a month in Venezuela. The Royal Flying Doctor Service severs ties with Israeli war machine manufacturer Elbit, Palestinian Ahmed Salah from the Palestine Support Network Australia will be telling us how they managed to achieve this. And with a bit of help from a lot of friends too. And finally, they um, broke that contact. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, journalists, and when we announced exclusively last week, we now have a new environmentally responsible dirty energy target to be known as debt. And today, big supremo Malcolm Tunnel-Bull and the Minister for Fossils, Josh Friedem-Icebergs, confirmed our announcement. Sitting on the laps of all these caring business class ventriloquist fossils with their hands up the you-know-where and looking very, very happy and, and content indeed. Reliability and affordability. Reliability, Malcolm's puppet said, and affordability. Reliability and affordability. Reliability and affordability. Uh, and addressing climate change, surely. Reliability and affordability. Reliability and affordability. At this point, the ventriloquist puppets were gasping and spluttering and losing control, which seemed to begin with the words climate change. Reliability and affordability, and we will meet our Paris commitments. Ah, yes, how? Uh, Because we made the commitment. And this morning, the Minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bashup, the workers, and that prominent ventriloquist fossil, Craig Killy, the planet, actually said we would meet our Paris commitment because we had made the commitment. And we thought the odd sceptic might like a little bit more information. What exactly does reliability and affordability mean, Malcolm? It means I can rely on being afforded the opportunity to remain Big Supremo. And the hands up as you know where made him nod vigorously. Mentioned last week, lead ventriloquist fossil Tiny a bit more for the bosses exuded logic during a speech to the Flat Earth Society in London, pointing out the science was not only clearly inconclusive but had been proven to be false. 
climate change is crap, climate change is crap. But, but, but Tony, when you were big supremo, you changed your mind. You said you believed in anthropogenic climate change. Did you lie to us all? I object to that slur. Object to that slur. I simply said something I didn't believe. Said something I didn't believe. And if we reckon Tiny's logic is impeccable, his biggest supporter, the Lord Rupert of Wapping usual suspect columnist, said the fact that all these people attacked Tiny proved what Tiny said was correct. Because in attacking him, they exposed that they couldn't rebut his arguments. <laughs> and no, listener, I've got no idea either. But we are dealing with Tiny and Bolt through the head. Although, personally, I find this encouraging, because if people attacking my views proves my views are correct, I've never been wrong in my life. Then again, I don't need Lord Rupert's Logic Run Riot columnist to know that. On logic and common sense, both were right up front as the federal court ruled slashing wages is the law. The fact that there were negative impacts on the living standards and needs of the low paid did not prevail. Their honours, who thankfully faced no risk of a cut to their own substantial salaries, judged. There were other considerations like looking after the interests of caring employers. Obviously, if we transfer wealth from the low paid to the filthy rich, that wealth will trickle down to the low paid, providing a sensible win-win solution. Solution using, <laughs> their honours laughed, because they are great wits, the word wealth very loosely when it comes to the low paid. <laughs> Note, lower than low paid workers are not proper people like their honours and the caring employers whose interests they upheld, but a generic blob, the low paid. Sadly, the evil unions are still so complaining they are now contemplating taking the matter to the High Court, where their honours are odds on to have the interests of the low paid at heart, front and centre. Shopping the workers' union boss, a good union boss, Gerard DeWire, our members so poor, said the decision was devastating for those members. In terms of devastation for our members, it's right up there with the deals we strike with their caring employers. And the caring employers through the Chamber of Profits said it was time the evil unions and the shopping the workers' good union accepted the umpire's decision. Mm, their spokesperson, James P. on you, sons, obviously not a Collingwood supporter, accepted the umpire's decision and stopped their campaign of disinformation. Disinformation? They're misinforming people that slashing wages for the low paid will hurt the low paid. Would we have fought and lobbied and cried poor for years to slash wages if we thought for one moment it would hurt our workers whom we so care about? Back in the High Court, their honours were hearing pleas for leniency by all these aliens who have stuck into our Parliament, presumably begging not to be sent to Manus or Nauru or Christmas Island or some other holiday resort at government expense. With Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle's legal team pointing out he is ignorant. And if that is a reasonable defence, Barnacle is a walk-up start.
Let's hope no one is so ungracious to point out that when it was just two Greens resigning, Malcolm and Barnacle put their immutable legal opinion that ignorance was no defence. They had no choice but to resign. But there must have been a change of law, because within days, ignorance became the defence, and they had no choice but not to resign. Mentioned last week also the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review Annual Power Edition, devoting so much more to the puppets than the puppeteers. Malcolm, the most powerful person in the country, for instance. Come on, convince Tiny of that. In fact, convince anybody. How they wish we'd swallow that one. Yet the real power wasn't addressed until P87, where the corporate puppeteers were listed. Well, Wednesday night, the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Fairfax Board, held a celebratory power edition dinner at one of Sydney's most exclusive restaurants for a list of power celebrities, the cream of the corporate puppeteers, and self-important hangers-on people like former socialist Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Supremo Anna Blight on Workers, who is now an apologist for the four big four banks, and if any group ever needed an apologist. But I reckon they earned every mouthful of the ultra-expensive fare, every sniff and tossing around the palate of every drop of the ridiculously expensive fine wines and spirits and liqueurs, because the guest speaker was the number six most powerful. Yes, Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer himself. I'm prepared to bet that that, that wasn't uh, mentioned on the invitation or no one would have turned up. When they did learn their fate, I'm also prepared to bet the drink bill went through the roof. The current Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Socialist Supremo Anastasia Palachek Faradani maintained Anna's class solidarity with that Glen Rotten to the core Oakey North Mine lockout since July. We mentioned how the courts had sensibly upheld rules made by Glenn Rottentuder that locked out workers couldn't say nasty things to or hold nasty signs about their caring employer and scabs. Oh, sorry, good workers who just want to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay. Well, Anastasia joined the battle this week. A socialist big supremo ordering the company to negotiate seriously rather than lock its workers out, I hear you say? Not quite. She attacked the evil union and locked out workers for abusing management and good workers for using cruel terms like scab. The company will doubtless make a rule the locked out must pat the scabs on the back, escort them in and thank them, which their courts will uphold. Their courts? Sorry, the totally neutral courts. Finally, Malcolm the Powerful and the team found the ideal way to utilise the millions it saved in the budget slashing public service numbers. It appointed the ubiquitous service provider Circoant the Profits, which so devotedly manages our concentration camps to run the call centre for Centrelink budgets, the thugs and screws bringing the same compassion, empathy and knowledge to the penurious. It's win-win. If the bludgers ring and complain, we send the government the bill. Then we banish the bludgers to Nauru or one of our Highland holiday camps, for which we send the government the bill. And then that person will be taken off the settling books, for which we send the government the bill, 
But really, it's win, 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 isn't it? And then if they get ill, thanks to our care, we treat them with a painkiller, uh, aspirin or something, and send the government the bill. And if that leads to suicide or natural, unnatural death, we send the government the bill. And then we also sue the government for failing at its duty of care. Uh, but they're in your care. All they did was ring up to ask why their payment hadn't arrived. Now they're dead. Care on behalf of the government because we are so efficient at what we do, uh, which is sending the government the bill. It's win, 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 win. Well, that'll teach people for bludging on welfare. Good afternoon. And it'll be good morning to Kevin Healy tomorrow at 9 o'clock for another episode of City Limits, which goes until 10 o'clock. And I think one of the highlights of City Limits is the the tea pouring. For one night only, the Great Forest National Park is coming alive at Howler, Brunswick, October 29th at 7pm. Celebrate our diverse Victorian wilderness through provoking forest projections and performances by Shane Howard, Zach Sabre and DJ Dillian Page. All proceeds go towards the Wilderness Society's work on the Great Forest National Park campaign. Tickets are just $25 from Moshtix. That's moshtix.com.au. Just search for Howler. So come and enjoy a unique night out and be wilder. B. Wilder is a 3CR supporter. Beacon Vista, halfway between Station and Princess Piers in Port Melbourne, was the place on November 2, 1928, when police shot Anzac veterans from World War I. Four workers were shot that day and one, Alan Whittaker, died from his wounds. The name of the police officer who fired that fatal bullet has never been revealed. For a number of years, residents, unions and activists have honoured the memory of Alan Whittaker and the others shot, with walks through the area and plans to have a plaque installed in their memory. I'm speaking with Kevin Bracken, former Victorian Branch Secretary of the Maritime Union. Kevin, we're talking today about police violence during an industrial dispute in 1928. But even then and earlier, not long after, police violence during industrial disputes acting on the side of employers occurred. What happened in 1928 wasn't the first and it wasn't the last, was it? No, that's right. Previously... Yeah, there'd been 19, 1890s. William McLean had been shot in Grasmere Station in 1894. I believe that Colonel Tom Price was in charge of Victorian mounted Victorian um, rifles. I made a statement, fire low and lay the bastards out when he was in, in confronted with um, striking units on the on the waterfront. In 1919, I think, in, in um, Fremantle, there was um, Tom Edwards, who was beaten to death with a uh, rifle butt by the police in Fremantle. And the 2nd of November, there was Alan Whittaker was shot alongside Jim Nagel, James Williams and another 
Australia, but those three, Alan Whittaker, James Nagel and James Williams, were all returned Anzac veterans. And then a year later? In um, Collie, Norm Brown was shot up in Collie. In a, in a, it was a mining dispute up there that was in 1929. Well, the event we're focusing on is, is Port Melbourne on the 2nd of November 1928, and it was in fact on the beach as waterside workers tried to protect their jobs from scabs. We need to go back a decade, like you said. A lot of those men on that waterfront that day who worked on the waterfront would have been veterans from World War One. They were. And the three out of the four people who were shot were veterans, and were all returned Anzacs. But there was a lot of the men on there would have all, all been too, especially Percy, that was Alan Whittaker's brother, who was, who'd been wounded three times in France. There was Bill Lowry, who was a, a, um, a community member down there. I think he had Bill had about six kids. I think he ended up and went on to have about eleven children. But he was a, he played football for St Kilda, and won a military medal over there too, and came back. He was promoted to sergeant. He was down there alongside him as well, as well as I think Brian Murphy's the policeman. His father was a, a wharfy down there at the time too, and apparently he was he woke up, he was knocked unconscious, and woke up the next morning under Princess Pia. So, if you can believe everything in his book. And what happened to Alan Whittaker in World War One? Alan Whittaker was uh, shot on the first day of the Anzac landing. He spent 80 days in hospital and walked the rest of his life with a limp. After that, his address when he signed up was, and he was one of the first to sign up in the First World War. He signed up in Sydney. His address was down in Yarraville. But by 1929, the Whittaker family had moved to Port Melbourne. He was actually living in Crockford Street, Port Melbourne, and his mother was living a couple of doors down there in Crockford Street. And what had happened is that Stanley Melbourne Bruce was the Prime Minister at the time. He had brought in an award, or Judge Beebe was the um, Chief of the, of the um, Arbitration Commission. He would brought in a, the Waterside Workers Federation and been trying to improve their conditions. And what um, Judge Beebe did, he brought all the conditions down. He removed the, like a maximum weight that could be lifted by by men. Previously, there was maximum weights. There was also maximum shift length times that had been abolished as well. There was overtime rates were cut, and the the thing that really got to everyone was he uh, got it down to one pickup for a day, which meant that if you didn't get a job in the morning, you could go and find some work somewhere else. Judge Booby brought back that you had to have, attend two pickups a day. So if you didn't get it work in the morning, you had to just wait again until the afternoon and wait to get picked up for the afternoon shift instead of. So you, it stopped you from actually going out and earning some money or or making a living or getting something to eat by another means. Just explain that pickup a bit more. Well, that's the way they did their pickup. Actually, you, there was two waterside um, unions in Melbourne at the time. They were both affiliated with the Waterside Workers Federation. There was a Port Phillip Stevedores Association, and their headquarters was in Bay Street, Port Melbourne. And there was a Melbourne Wharf Labourers Union. And the, the Port Phillip Stevedores set the they set the um, best rates for the conditions on the waterside. They were the first ones to have the one one pickup. And that would do their pick-up in their union room. So they'd go in there, and it was a civilised manner. They had a library. They had, you know, a um, a place where they could sit down and read and consider things too and discuss it. And after the dispute, they were wiped out completely. They were bankrupted, and um, both bodies affiliated just became the Waterside Workers' Federation. But what happened, when they, because they refused to abide by the BB Award, which came down in September and it had probably been six or seven weeks since they'd been in any pay, paid employment in Melbourne, 
they had the ship owners had rec- started recruiting scabs, and they start they call it the um, Permanents and Casuals Union. And what happened was they'd brought in since that in the meantime too they'd brought in a dog collar act that everyone who had to uh, attend for work had to own a, a dog or look like a dog collar. They had to buy it from buy a license to work on the waterfront, and they could be sacked for six months they couldn't could be from working again if they refused to work alongside a, a scab or if they refused a foreman's order or something anything like that so after being out for that time they decided that at the end they, they had to give in because people were starving there was no they weren't um there was no dole money or anything in those days and this was the beginning of the depression it was well in, in the depression that's what they say in poor melbourne that was at the beginning of the depression 1928 because what I was getting to there was the waterside workers only got picked up after all the permanents and casuals were, had first preference. So the permanents and casuals got the uh, first preference for all work and only then did waterside workers members get um, selected for work. So what had happened is that the, their pickup had moved from Bay Street to what was called Hogan's Flat, which was an area, flat area in between uh, Station Pier and Princess Pier, named after the Army Victorian Employment Minister. There was no shelter from the rain or the sun or the wind or anything else out there. They had to stand out in the open like cattle and they'd be selected for work. So they'd been attending for work for a week. None of them had had any work. And um, on, as a matter of fact, it was a Friday morning on the 2nd of November. The foreman hadn't even turned up to, to um, go through the exercise with them. And a trainload of scabs had um, arrived at... Port Melbourne Station after travelling from Flinders Street they were being escorted across a pier by the, by the police and were going to work on the um, SS Chitral which was at Princess Pier and it become too much I, I believe it, it was probably about 200 uh, waterside workers charged onto the pier and there was a bit of biffo and um, they were driven back by the police with batons and uh, steam hoses were trained on them from the um, ship's officers and pistols were drawn on by the ship's officers too so they were in the process of going off the pier when, when the shooting happened. Do they know who actually shot them in? No, there was no, there was an inquiry into it, but no, it was never, no one was ever named as shooting. They believe there was about 90 shots fired in the air too, but obviously most of them were firing in the, in the air, but someone was firing at them because four, four men were shot. And what happened to them then? Alan Whitaker was shot and they, he was bleeding, he was shot through the neck and his bullet coming out through his mouth and they then picked him up and they said, you know, take us to hospital and the police said, no, he's one of yours, you look after yours and we'll look after ours. So they put him in a, um, in a car and we drove him through the, um, uh, streets to what was a homopathic hospital become Prince Henry's hospital later on. So there was a lot of confusion. People were actually put in the Port Melbourne lock up and broken out later on through the day and there was, you know, a lot of school children from uh, Graham Street School heard the shots and ran across. It was about nine o'clock in the morning. They ran across the uh, sand dunes to see whether their fathers had been shot or what was going on. So anyone could have got killed that day. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It was, it was only, killing. Well, it was only it was firing into a crowd of people. Yes. And what happened to the four of them after that? Well, we only know Alan Whitaker was um, ended up dying of septicemia. And that was on the 29th of April, the next year, 1929. So he was sick for four, five he months. He was sick and he was in a lot of pain too. But um, Frank Vincent did an, had a look at the, um, the coroner's report 
and the autopsy on Alan Whittaker, and he said what actually killed him was um, malnutrition, that he didn't have he didn't have enough um, you know he was a a person who was suffering malnutrition, and the, he didn't have the strength to fight the infection in his in his um, teeth, and that's what killed him in the end. And that must have affected many of the men, because as you said, a lot of them were veterans from World War One, and when they came back from the war, they didn't get much, did they? No, they didn't. Support from the government. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of, you know, know, we speak nowadays about the Anzac heroes and all those, and as if they were, you know, something different, but they were actually working people, you know, most of them were working people, and that's what they came back to. And there was no public inquiry into this shooting into a crowd? No, there was no public inquiry, and and Frank Vincent's actually had a look at the, um, and he said it was a whitewash. It was just done to cover up for the uh, police actions that day. And no police person was named as a shooter? No one was named as a shooter and it was put down as justifiable homicide. And I think Thomas Blamey, who was in charge of the police force at the time, said he'd made a statement in the hours that said, yeah, it was all fully justified and they deserve what they got. And what happened after that? You said the unions were destroyed? Well, yeah, the waterside workers was virtually bankrupted in Melbourne. Melbourne was the last port to hold out against the, the BB award. So this was happening all over Australia? All over Australia it happened, yeah. And as I said, Melbourne was the last place to go back. So from then on, they only got second preference for work. They only got picked up after. And they, those two unions stayed separate until um, 1950s. And I think at the end, Jim Healy and Melbourne said, well, we have to accept them in there. But people never forgot. Even people I know who worked in the 70s, people who were um, had scabbed in 1928, were put on the, on the coat. And when did the campaign begin to recognise Alan Whittaker and the other men who were shot? Well, I suppose it's been an effort, especially through the 80s, from the 80s on, that there have been efforts put down by the um, Port Melbourne Council at the time, especially Percy Percy White, who had been mayor and a council for a a number of years and a very uh, strong community person, to um, have some recognition of Alan Whittaker recognised. But it's probably taken this long now, and this, this, we've had regular walks or commemorations for the last, at least the last 10 years. Where did you walk? We did an historic walk through Port Melbourne. We walked from Princess Pier. We walked to um, the Port Melbourne Railway Station, which was the first train line in the Southern Hemisphere, to the site where the, where the um, scabs had been loaded off the, off the platform. And on, the mor- on that morning, they were confronted with all the wives and mothers and of the um, waterside workers who said our kids are starving and they were, they were giving them a hard time too. And also, like, there's, there's a lot of other characters in there too. Jenny Bain, who was a famous suffragette, was very active in the um, move to support um, the waterside workers as well. And Mrs Whittaker after the um, after his son, her son had been killed. What do you actually want now? Nearly coming up to 100 years. We believe that the, um, it'll be recognised, the gatehouse will be recognised as the Ellen Whittaker Centre. What's the gatehouse? The gatehouse was constructed after the shooting on Princess Pier. It wasn't used for a while. It's currently being used as part of the um, campus for Albert Park College. So it's a great, a great venue for letting young people know part of the history of Port Melbourne. And it's very important now too because anyone who goes to Port Melbourne now will just think what a wonderful suburb it is and how elegant everything is too. But its history has been a lot different. And part of the spirit that Port Melbourne community had was that they um, was through the the hard work that people put in those times, and if you think about it these days, you know, 
people went without work because they stuck with their union. They could have easily joined the Permanent and Casual Union and they would have got the perfect after work. They didn't. They stuck with each other. It wasn't until the Second World War came that they actually got back the um, rights that they had and that was out of necessity. And Jim Healy, who was a Secretary of the Waterside Workers Federation, sat on the war board with you know, MacArthur and, and John Curtin because they recognised that they needed the people to be working together you know, to, to defeat a common enemy. What does the plaque on the gate say? There isn't a plaque on the on the gates yet. We believe it'll say the Alan Whitaker Centre. But there is a plaque in memorial of, of Hogan's flat and Alan Whitaker who was shot there. But it's put in a bit of, in a not very conspicuous position. And what do you want? Just at the front of at the front of Princess Pier. We just like the story to be told. We like people to know the history. History doesn't repeat, but it is instructive, you know, for what's happened. Well, history does repeat in a, in one sense with the 1998 lockout. <laughs> it does, yeah. Well, those who know history know how it's repeated, because yeah, the um, great point, Jan, because in 1998 they called the the other body of workers the permanents and casuals or the PNCs. Sorry, they call them the producers and consumers, the PNCs. So the point's not lost on people on the upper end of the market. And working people have got to get their heads around that there is a long-term campaign that they're being subjugated continually. Unless they're aware of it, it's just going to get, they're going to be on the back foot all the time. And we have to remember that they brought the scabs in exactly the same way as they did in 1928. <laughs> they brought them in on the boats and in, yeah, and in buses. What's the connection with the school now? The, the school students are learning about that history? Well, the school students are actually, the Year 9 students this year are doing a, a local history component. So some of the people from the Historical Society who are going to be speaking to them will be talking about that and part of Paul Melbourne's history. And I believe that on the 2nd of November, when we have the commemoration this year, there'll be a presentation made by the um, Albert Park school children. What's going to happen on the day? What's more? What more is going to happen on the day? On the day, well, as I said, there'll be a presentation from the school children. There'll also be an address from Frank Vincent, who's been very uh, strong in support for the um, having this campaign going. There'll also be an address by uh, Noel Turnbull, who's a historian who wrote the, the book The History of Port Melbourne. And he, Noel's been very active about it too. And you can see the importance of, of remembering history too. It's a great history, isn't it? The, the history of the workers in Port Melbourne. It is. It's a, it's, and what is a shame is that if it gets lost, it's a working class suburb. And then when people who move to Port Melbourne say, what a great suburb it is now. Growing up in Port Melbourne, there was no place better to grow up. And we mightn't have had everything, but we all had good friends and we all stuck together. And of course, it wasn't just the waterside workers. There were a lot of factories there. It was a, it was a hive of activity of industry in Port Melbourne. There was a GMH factory. There was, you know, factories all over the place. And I suppose that's why they had it. They needed, a lot of people working on the wharf and they need a lot of people to work for industry and they kept those cheap areas, cheap housing areas, so people <laughs> could be supplying the, um, the, f- the fodder for the factories and everything else too. And are those small working class houses still there? Some of them are still there, yeah, and they're quite expensive now too. <laughs> so it's sort of forced the local people out in a sense? Yeah, a lot of people who have lived there for a long time, and the shame of it is that because the house price of real estate is so expensive there, young people can't afford to move there and they've, a lot of them have headed west. If you'd like people to come on the day, what, what's going to happen? Yeah, it'd be fantastic. For anyone who wants to come along, 
it's a princess pia and people we need to remember the stories and the sense of um, history about places it'll be on the uh, 2nd of November at 11am the shooting happened probably about 9 o'clock that morning yeah. it was, but it was also yeah, it was on, it's on a Thursday this, this year it was on actual Friday in 1928 but it also ties in with the um, police strike too which was 1923 and it was 5 years to the day that was also on the 2nd of November when the police went on strike there and what happened any of those policemen who went on strike never got their job back and Thomas Blamey was put from the army in charge of the police to make sure that the police association never got back together. But um, it is back together again, and you've got to be thankful that you know working people have got a um, association to support them. But they're not at trades well anymore. Well, I don't know. I think they did. I think they went back there. They've gone back and. <laughs> but I will say, through the Patrick's dispute, the police could have been a lot worse than what they were in 1998. And why weren't they? Well, they were doing an EBA, but also I think the people who was in who were um, running the police at the time didn't want to be um, used as um, just to downbeat other workers. They were decent people in there. They'd met first of all with the scabs before they met with the union. <laughs> I could say they're probably pissed off with the uh, people who they spoke to first. Don't have any doubt about it. Jeff Cannon wanted them to go in and bust heads and everything down there too. History shows. It wasn't taken fantastic, antagonistic. Everyone got their job back. You know, well, people who wanted to work down there continued to work down there too. The company's got, you know, something out of it. But the thing is that the union's intact and we've improved the conditions that we lost from the um, 1998 dispute. And I'm sure there were descendants from that 1928 days at that dispute in 1998. For sure there was, yeah. A lot of people, and as I said, there were still scabs on the waterfront until 1970s and People never forgot the people who did scab. And that's Kevin Bracken, the former Secretary, Victorian Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia. And that morning is the 2nd of November. It's a Thursday. It's at 11 o'clock and it's at Princess Pier. And it should be a a great day to remember the veterans of um, Gallipoli who were mown down by police on the waterfront at Port Melbourne, 2nd of November, 11 o'clock, at Princess Pier. If you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible and you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 8377. In recent times, the activity of the campaign against fascism and racism have concentrated on rallies, mainly in the city but also in outer Melbourne and Bendigo, to confront the neo-Nazi groups spewing their hatred. But this year, increasingly, 
its local council meetings. And I'm speaking with a member of CAF, Debbie Brennan. Yes, that's actually a very important point because what this is showing is that the neo-Nazis are now taking to disrupting meetings such as public meetings of local councils right now and it's showing that we don't just go to them to counteract them. They are now coming to us. They're coming to our communities and they are disrupting our meetings with the purpose of trying to intimidate and terrorise. How many times has it happened so far? It has happened three times. The first time was the very day that the magistrate's court convicted one of the leaders of these council raids, Neil Erickson, convicted him and two other neo-Nazis of violence against Muslims. That very day, Neil Erickson and others went to the Yara Council meeting and they disrupted it. They have then twice done the same thing to Moreland Council. So if they go back to Yara Council tonight, this will be the fourth time. What are you expecting tonight? We can only act on information. It's highly likely that they intend to come because it was only last week that they had made their third attack, which was on Moreland Council. So they are ramping up their disruptions. So it's highly likely that they will come back to Yarra Council, which is just a regular Yarra Council meeting. And so congratulations, by the way, to Yarra Council for calling out to the Melbourne community to come and defend it. So we're going to be there at the Richmond Town Hall to stop the neo-Nazis from being able to get in. And where exactly is the Richmond Town Hall? It's at 333 Bridge Street in Richmond. And it's on a tram line, of course. Yes, it is, yes. So it's very accessible for, for people to get there. And it would be most important for as many people to get there as possible. We'll be getting there from 6.30. This is being organized by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism and also No Room for Racism. So the more people, the better, because we need to be showing these neo-Nazi thugs, these very dangerous neo-Nazi thugs, that we can overpower them with our numbers. The council had contacted Campaign Against Racism and Fascism to, to um, let us know that they had gotten information that a, uh, another raid was being planned and they asked CARF to help to mobilize the defense. What happens on, when they burst into a town hall? What's it like? Mm, yeah, what they've done so far, um, I was at one of them at um, their first raid on Moreland Council, and there are about, about six or so of them. They just barge into the room very loudly with their megaphones. They take over 
the room. They they just go into the into the faces of the counselors who are holding their meeting. And for those of us residents who were who were at that meeting, um, they turned on us and they just yell abuse. Apparently, last week at Moreland Council, they brought in a um, a mock coffin, and so that's basically what they do. So they charge in, they spend about possibly ten or so minutes, and then they charge out. Now, I got to say that um, the night I was there, there were a number of us there who were speaking to submissions to the council, ironically, free speech submissions to the council. And we were, three of us were, were actually from organizations, three different organizations, which are members of CARF. And so those of us in that room stood up to the neo-Nazis. So we know how to stand up to them. And what will be happening tonight if the neo-Nazis appear is that we will be able to preempt them this time from getting into a council meeting. And it's increasingly important, isn't it, when you look at what's happening in Europe with elections in, I think it's Germany and now mm. Austria, that's giving these groups um, a bit of courage, I suppose. Yes, you're, you're right. And it, it really is a ramping up of the situation. And I think that what we're seeing here is that just as the neo-Nazis were using Islamophobia to drive that wedge between working class people, they have also used their white supremacist nationalism against the African community and, of course, obviously, the First Nations peoples. And it's consistent, really, that um, they are jumping on to this decision by the three councils so far, which is, uh, is pretty much a pointy edge decision, which is actually recognizing January 26th for what it is. First Nations peoples have been telling us consistently that it's the celebration of dispossession and genocide. These three councils have listened. They've collaborated with the First Nations. They've made the right decision. And now we have the white supremacists who are coming out in the open, basically showing what they, they stand for. So we have to stand up and show what we stand for and um, stand with First Nations people in defending these councils. Of course, what it also is is a, a threat by them to local democracy. Absolutely. That's, that's what they're there to do. They're there to, to crush our democratic rights, and that's where we need to be prepared as a community to be defending those rights and it's really telling us that um, we need to be prepared and we need to be there as a community defense and it's showing everyone those of us in the community included that we actually have the power to do that we have to exercise that power which means exercising our democratic rights and our free speech 
and the address and the time again? Yes, it's going to take place at 6.30 tonight at Richmond Town Hall, and that's at 3.33 Bridge Road, I believe it is, in Richmond. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks a lot. And that, of course, is Debbie Brennan from the campaign against racism and fascism. And just to reiterate, that place tonight is the Richmond Town Hall at 333 Bridge Road in Richmond and um, at 6.30 if you want to be there. Time now is 4.45. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. You could be listening on your digital radio, 3CR. You could be still with an analogue, 8.55am. You could be streaming on 3cr.org.au for a week from today. And in the future, you could be listening to the podcast. Also find that on 3cr.org.au. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Next, one of the speakers at the very successful IPAN Independent Peaceful and Australian Network conference, which was held here in Melbourne in September. This time it's former academic and practising barrister since 1984, first in New Zealand and since 2002 in Brisbane, and I'm speaking about James O'Neill. He writes on geopolitical issues with special emphasis on international law and human rights. I joined with the other speakers yesterday in paying my respects to the traditional owners of the land on whose territory we meet. I attend a lot of meetings and give a lot of addresses, and that is a, a common part of each of those meetings. And I think it's very important for us to bear in mind that it is more than just a symbolic gesture towards the people. We need to constantly keep in mind the circumstances under which this land became occupied by European colonialists. There have been devastating consequences of that invasion for the Aboriginal people, as indeed, as I will make clear, I hope, in my presentation this morning, equally devastating consequences of other invasions elsewhere in our lifetime. I'm always put in mind of a, of a very apt metaphor by the late Dick Gregory, and he was talking about the Vietnam War and those of you who have been to Vietnam will know that in Vietnam they refer to it as the American War. Dick Gregory said that the Vietnam War was fought by black people against yellow people so that white people could keep the land they stole from red people. That's very, very apt and appropriate metaphor to be applied elsewhere. What I'm going to try to do today is to put the South China Sea 
and the risk of war, which is my title, into a broader geopolitical framework. Of course, it's self-evident that the risk of war is not confined to the South China Sea. In fact, the risk of war there is probably less than it is in other significant flashpoints around the world. It's a general feature of the post-1945 geopolitical world that the United States does not attack nations that are capable of fighting back. This has been especially true since they fled from the rooftops of Saigon in 1975. William Blum's latest list of governments the US has overthrown or sought to overthrow since 1945 numbers 55, of which 32 were successful. Some countries in that list appear more than once. Some recent examples of military intervention aimed at regime change, at least nominally, and also involving Australia, include Afghanistan. A project known as Operation Cyclone actually began in the 1970s under President Jimmy Carter. There was a full-blown invasion in 2001 that, of course, we took part in. Iraq in 2003, which we also took part in. Libya in 2011, which we had a peripheral role in Syria in 2012, where we are also there illegally. Attempted overthrows and even successful ones do not necessarily involve a military invasion. The Ukrainian coup of 2014 was brought about by what is, by American standards, a cheap investment of $5 billion in reliance upon local forces to overthrow the legitimately elected Yukanovich government. That country, like many on Blum's list, is a chaotic, dysfunctional state where the lives of ordinary citizens are measurably worse than before the intervention. Both the causes and the consequences of the outside intervention are seriously and continually misrepresented by the mainstream media. It's something that has always to be taken into account when one considers both the issues and the parties involved. There are usually a large a number of other features that the targeted countries share. They either occupy strategically geographical locations or have resources that the US military complex covets and sometimes both. Australia is on Blum's list and he cites the coup against the Whitlam government in 1975 about which Jenny Hocking has done invaluable research. The precipitating factor was probably Whitlam's desire to close the US spy base at Pine Gap then is now playing a central role in assisting the perpetration of spying as well as facilitating war crimes through electronic targeting. Australia, of course, has a huge range of natural raw materials as well as being, in the words of a recent American senior military visitor, Commander-in-Chief of Naval Forces in the Pacific, what he called a stationary aircraft carrier. A Defence Department spokesman who was present at the same press conference that he gave added the qualification that Australia was, and I quote, outside the range of Chinese missiles, to which my reply is Dongfeng 41. If you don't know what that is, go away and Google it. That claim by the Defence Department spokesman suggests he's either ignorant or he's willfully misleading the taxpaying public with whose security he is charged. One has to have some justification for all these invasions, proxy wars, coups, and other forms of interference. It is deeply ironic that the United States, easily the, most, the greatest serial offender of them all, should accuse Russia of interference in its recent presidential election. The accusations are broadcast and reprinted without a hint of embarrassment 
by the Australian mainstream media, the usual justifications put forward have an element of repetition. The heads of government are accused of horrendous crimes or posing an unacceptable risk to world peace, another deep irony, or allegedly threatening the very survival of Western civilization or of particular states. Afghanistan, for example, was said to be sheltering Osama bin Laden and refusing to hand him over to American justice, quote-unquote, for his alleged role in the events of the 11th September 2001. The Afghan government at the time, not unreasonably in my view, demanded some proof, evidence, that bin Laden played his alleged role. If the evidence were produced, they said, they would turn him over to an independent international tribunal for trial. That evidence was never forthcoming in the view of, the, uh, of many scholars of that seminal event of 9-11, it never could be. Some might also argue that the example of the prisoners incarcerated for years without charge or trial, and in many cases tortured, at Guantanamo Bay prison camp would be further ample cause to be sceptical of any notion of American justice. We saw pictures of Guantanamo Bay yesterday on the screen with one of the, one of the other speakers. You'd be, probably be aware that that bay, that um, camp base was acquired in the 1898 Spanish-American War when the government installed by the victorious Americans after the main incident was used to justify that particular war, had never left Cuba, notwithstanding repeated requests by the Cuban government to leave, which is a, a salutary lesson for all countries that have American bases. We now know that the decision to invade Afghanistan was in fact made in July 2001, two months before the events of 9-11 provided its ostensible justification. We also know that the reason for the invasion followed upon the refusal of the Afghan government to grant pipeline rights to an American consortium of companies to bring oil and gas from the immensely rich Caspian Basin region. The actual terms used by the American negotiator in July 2001 to the Afghan government was, you have a choice. You can have a carpet load of gold or a carpet load of bombs. The contract was instead given to Bridas Corporation, an Argentinian company, and their contract was cancelled very shortly after the 2001 invasion. They got $500 million compensation from the American government by suing them in the American courts. That's never been reported in the Australian papers. Sixteen years later, the invading forces, including Australia, are still there. The only beneficiaries appear to be the military-industrial complex for whom, as Gore Vidal pointed out, perpetual war means perpetual profit. And the CIA who used the massive opium crop to finance the off-the-books clandestine operations around the world, as has long been documented, the golden triangle of opium in the 1960s and 1970s, Colombian cocaine up to and including the present time. The US Geological Survey did a survey of Afghanistan's resources six or seven years ago, determined that it was between one and three trillion dollars worth of unexploited resources in Afghanistan and Trump in, in his inimitable way said uh, just a few weeks ago that that's a good reason to stay. With Iraq it was the alleged possession of weapons of mass destruction. You will recall the hysteria generated by the Blair government about being only 15 minutes away from annihilation. The British government did at least hold an inquiry under Sir John Chilcott 
results of which were a devastating expose of the lies that led to that war. Despite the best efforts in Australia of my friend Alison Bronowski, whom you heard from yesterday, in the campaign for an Iraq war inquiry in this country, both sides of Parliament here have steadfastly refused to emulate the British or the Dutch or the Canadians, all of whom produced damning reports about the decisions of the government of the day to join the American invasion of Iraq. The outcome of that wholly unnecessary and illegal war was the devastation of a country, well over a million deaths, four million persons forced into either exile internally or abroad, and an ongoing war with ISIS, the spawn of the original invasion. Australia not only joined that illegal war based on monstrous lies, more than 16 years later, we're still there, still committing war crimes, and so uncertain of the Iraqi government that all military personnel have been issued with diplomatic passports to maintain their immunity from prosecution. The Iraqi government has refused to sign the Status of Forces Agreement with Australia. Again, we know that the decision to invade Iraq was made at the very first Cabinet meeting of, to use Arundhati Roy's wonderfully evocative phrase, Bush the Lesser, in January 2001. We also know that Vice President Cheney chaired a committee throughout 2001 and 2002 that drew up plans for the division of Iraq's oil assets between favoured oil companies, primarily American. In the case of Libya, Gaddafi was alleged to be killing his own people. Libya remains a broken state, having once had Africa's highest standard of living. Gaddafi's crime, apart from wanting Libya's people to actually share the benefits of its huge oil and gas reserves, had the temerity to be working towards replacing the US dollar as the medium of payment for its oil and gas. Saddam Hussein had similar ambitions for Iraq. Syria had friendly relations with the US until 2011, when Bashar al-Assad refused to allow Syria to be used for the transit of Qatari gas to Europe. The Americans wanted to use Qatari gas to replace Russian gas as Europe's main source of imported energy. Little or none of this is ever discussed in the mainstream media. Instead, we are always asked to believe that the US acts from the best of altruistic motives, ridding the world of loathsome dictators, bringing stability to a region, underwriting our security, and so on. I mention these brief examples because they provide an essential context for understanding what is going on in the South China Sea. The first point to note from the map is that there are a number of countries bordering the South China Sea, none of them either Australia or the United States. In fact, it is 13,000 kilometres from Ho Chi Minh City to Los Angeles and 6, 000, just under 6,800 kilometres from Ho Chi Minh City to Canberra. From Hainan Island, off the coast of China, it's 12,000 kilometres and 7,300 kilometres, respectively. In the same way that scepticism about the mainstream media's version of events in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya and Syria should be the dominant mindset, so too is that the case with the South China Sea. We hear and read a great deal about China's alleged, and I use these words in inverted commas, aggressiveness or assertiveness or bullying of its neighbours in the region. China's claims to maritime rights within what is commonly referred to the Nine Dash Line 
are the root of these allegations. I have never seen even a faint attempt by the mainstream media to put that claim in any sort of proper context. The map there shows the nine dashed lines and highlights the Paracels, Spratleys and uh, Scarborough Shoal. The, the, the nine dashed line was first formulated in 1947 by the Chiang Kai-shek nationalist government that at the time ruled China. That was two years before the PRC even came into existence. In 1949, Chiang Kai-shek fled to what was then called Formosa, a Chinese island off the mainland coast. He survived there, what later became uh, the Republic of China, or Taiwan, because American warships patrolled the Formosa Strait and prevented the PRC from taking control of that part of China that had always been part of China. I refer to it as part of China because that is its official status. There is only one China, and that has been the case even in the Western media since Nixon dropped the absurdity of the two-China policy in 1972. Moreover, Taiwan refers to itself as being part of China. The disagreement between the two governments comes as to who should actually be running the show. It is one of the important reasons why the claims of the modern-day PRC and those of Taiwan are almost identical in respect of the nine-dash line. That simple fact is also barely acknowledged, if at all, in the mainstream media. The similarities do not end with their having essentially identical claims to rights within the nine-dash line. Taiwan claims rights to the Spratly Islands, which you see there a long, long way south of Taiwan, and also the Paracel Islands, and to the left of the Spratlys, as well as part of the Macclesfield Bank, which is part of the Scarborough Shoal, which you can see off to the right, running parallel with the coast of the Philippines. Taiwan maintains a military base on the island of Pratos in the Spratlys group. The distance from Taiwan to, to Pratos is just under 2,000 kilometres. Taiwan's military activities on the island and in the surrounding sea are never mentioned in the Australian mainstream media. The Spratlys are the most contested group of largely rocky outcrops in the whole of the South China Sea. They are claimed in whole by the PRC, by Taiwan and by Vietnam, and claimed in part by Brunei, Malaysia and the Philippines. The Scarborough Shoal, geographically closest to the Philippines, is claimed by the Philippines, by Taiwan and by the PRC. And it was the Philippines' claim to the Scarborough Shoal that was brought before an arbitration hearing pursuant to Annex 7 of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. I'll call it UNCLOS for short. Although the Philippines was the applicant, no Filipino lawyer actually took part in the hearing, which was conducted entirely by British and American lawyers. A further irony was that the United States, which has never signed nor ratified UNCLOS, is the one most likely to demand its rights under freedom of navigation operations. China neither participated in the arbitration process, nor did it recognise the outcome, although China is a party to UNCLOS. Taiwan also does not accept the ruling, although again that is never mentioned in the Australian mainstream media. China much prefers to engage in bilateral negotiations or multilateral negotiations, and that is exactly what it is doing and has been doing for a considerable period of time 
with some measures of success, particularly with the ASEAN group. The Philippine action against China in respect of the South China Sea was commenced under President Duterte's predecessor, who, like Turnbull, was a loyal acolyte of the American wishes. Duterte has chosen to largely ignore the tribunal's findings and has made a point of seeking to improve relations with the PRC for a whole lot of reasons, not least of all, of course, them being geographical. It's in the Philippines' interest to have good relations with the PRC. Tony Cartolucci, in my view, a very good geopolitical analyst based in Bangkok, notes that as Duterte's relations with the U.S. deteriorated and improved with China, ISIS suddenly became a significant problem in the Philippines' southern regions that have a strong Muslim component. A simmering dispute has gone on for a couple of hundred years. This is entirely consistent with a pattern that we have seen since at least the 1970s, as the big new Brzezinski boasted in his book, The Grand Chessboard, and in fact is spelled out in a Defence Intelligence Agency strategy paper that was leaked in 2012. Support for terrorist groups is a key element of US strategy in targeted countries. It's also a strategy that Andrew Karipko, who's written extensively in this area, he calls it hybrid wars, has explored in some detail. We see a current example of this in Rakhine State in uh, northern Myanmar. Chinese are developing a multi-billion dollar economic corridor which incorporates Bangladesh, China, India and Myanmar, leading to a, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, Kyogfu is my best stab at the Burmese, special economic zone. It's a $10 billion pipeline that has been built there to bypass the Malacca Strait that I'll come, come to in a, uh, in a moment. What we are seeing, of course, now is a tremendous amount of publicity being given to the plight of the Rohingya Muslim refugees. What we're not told about is that there are also Islamist terrorist groups operating in State, Rakhine State, and it is the reaction to this by the Burmese army that is causing the, the civilian refugees to flee. The attention is entirely upon the refugees and not upon the cause uh, of them fleeing. Another common accusation levelled against the PRC is that it is militarising the South China Sea by building up atolls into fortified artificial islands. These islands then have the capacity to have missiles installed and other weaponry. That's certainly true. To date, the PRC has constructed eight such fortified atolls. But it is not alone. Other littoral states are doing exactly the same, including Taiwan, Vietnam and the Philippines. Vietnam alone has already constructed seven such artificial military outposts equipped with missiles and other weaponry. There are, at least according to some reports, dozens of these artificial islands that have been built by littoral states to the South China Sea. I've seen a figure of 44. Yet it is the PRC that alone is labelled as aggressive because it is building uh, these artificial islands. A good argument can be constructed, in my view, that China's actions are in fact defensive in nature rather than a harbinger of threats or to or invasions of neighbouring states. Why might this be so? The outstanding reason is the huge military presence 
in the region. This did not begin with Obama's pivot to Asia, something he announced in a, st- a speech that he gave to the Australian Parliament on the 17th of November uh, 2015, I think it was. As far back as 1866, the US General Sherman forced its way up the Taedong River in Korea in an attempt to forcibly open what was a closed and isolationist state through gunboat diplomacy. The Shosan dynasty that had ruled a Confucian and isolationist Korea for more than 500 years sent emissaries to the USS General Sherman and told them to leave Korea alone. The ship's officers did not accept that and took the emissaries hostage and then opened fire on the locals. They were in turn attacked, their ship destroyed and the crew killed. A large US armada returned five years later in 1871 seeking revenge. They obliterated the Korean defenders. They forced the Shazan to sign what they were pleased to call a friendship treaty, guaranteeing, quote, perpetual peace and friendship, unquote. In 1905, in the infamous Taft-Katsura Memorandum, Korea was in effect handed over to the Japanese. What the US got in return was non-interference by the Japanese in the US's forcible colonisation of the Philippines. 600,000 Filipinos died. Millions of Koreans died during the 1905-1945 occupation of the country by the Japanese. More than 75% of the euphemistically entitled comfort women died during their sexual enslavement. One in five of the victims of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombings were Korean slave labour. The full story of Korea's history of relations with the United States is outside the scope of what I'm discussing today, but I urge those who are interested in an honest history appraisal of that country and its relationship with the United States to read one of the several excellent books by the American historian Bruce Cummings. That honest history bears no resemblance to the portrait presented in our media or from the bellicose posturing of the current president, of the United States or has joined at the hip, Canberra Lackey. A key entry and exit point to the South China Sea is the Malacca Strait. It's that very narrow little bit of water where there's a red star showing Singapore. It's between Malaysia and Sumatra. About $5 trillion worth of world trade passes through this strait every year, mostly toured from China. The trade includes about 80% of China's oil and gas imports, and is thus of great strategic importance to the PRC. It's one of the world's seven great choke points. It's only two and a half kilometres wide. And a major American strategic goal is the control of all seven of those choke points. Australia engages in a massive biannual exercise with the Americans called Operation Talisman Sabre. One of the exercise's objectives is to practice blockading the Malacca Strait. This is clearly aimed at depriving China of its oil and gas imports. So much for freedom of navigation. The overwhelming loser of any strictures on trade in the South China Sea would be China itself. I've not heard a single logical argument that explains why the PRC would wish to inhibit the movement of civilian maritime traffic in this vital sea area. China does not like the movement of military vessels through what it says are its territorial waters. It's well-settled international maritime law that military vessels acting peaceably 
may transit territorial waters, that is, any waters within the 12 nautical mile limit as defined in UNCLOS. The argument, of course, hinges around what constitutes innocent passage. Transit from A to B would not necessarily be a problem, especially as with narrow waterways, encroachment within the 12-mile limit may be unavoidable. It becomes a much more fraught issue when warships repeatedly sail within 12 nautical miles of islands that are the subject of disputed claims. To say that is an exercise in freedom of navigation is nonsense, as legitimate passage is guaranteed under UNCLOS and the PRC has ratified UNCLOS, the United States has not. It's clearly intended as a provocation and hence heightens tensions with their attendant risks more than it helps to resolve the dispute. This is particularly the case as there is not a single instance of China actually impeding the passage of shipping. Australia makes supportive noises about this American activity, but given its own multiple violations of international law, be more prudent to keep its mouth shut. There is already in place a means of resolving outstanding issues in the South China Sea, although neither Australia nor the US seem particularly interested in promoting them, and in the case of the Australian media, it barely rates a mention. In November 2002, the 10 ASEAN nations plus China entered an agreement known as the Declaration on the Conduct of the Parties in the South China Sea. DOC for short. Since then, there have been 14 meetings of senior officials of the 11 countries concerned. The latest such meeting was held in May of this year, when the parties reached an agreement by consensus and announced that they had finalised a code of conduct for the disputed areas of the South China Sea. According to the statement issued after the meeting, all parties agreed, and I quote, to uphold the declaration using the framework of regional rules to manage and control disputes, to deepen practical maritime cooperation, to promote consultation on the code, and jointly maintain the peace and stability of the South China Sea, unquote. Work is continuing on the formulation of the precise rules and regulations that will give details to the broad outline of the agreement. The main question is, what lies behind this American assertion of rights in its challenge to China's activities when manifestly freedom of navigation is not a real issue. And given that the United States has approximately 400 military bases in a wide arc encircling China, as part of its self-proclaimed containment of the PRC, and given that the PRC, unlike the United States, does not engage in continuous warfare around the world, why the provocative and belligerent behaviour? The answer to that question, I suggest, lies in the American reaction to the fundamental changes occurring in the geopolitical structure of the world. And that's James O'Neill, who was speaking at the IPAN conference, Independent Peaceful Australian Network Conference, which was held here in Melbourne last month. He's a barrister and a former academic. It's coming up to 16 minutes past five. When you were young, did you walk to school? Most children these days don't. In October, hundreds of thousands of children, parents and grandparents around Victoria will be part of Vic Health's Walk to School Month. Why not join them? Walk to school with your kids or grandchildren and enjoy the chance to talk and teach road safety skills while getting active yourself. 
It's a great way to spend quality time together. Ask your kids' primary school if they are doing something special for Walk to School Month and remember to walk, ride a bike or scooter to and from school in October. To find out more or to register, visit walktoschool.vic.gov.au. A 3CR supporter. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Next, a first-hand account of the situation in Venezuela as the people struggle to hold on to their long and hard-fought-for Bolivarian revolution. I'm speaking with writer and activist Coral Winter, recently returned from a month in Venezuela. Coral, that's a, a relatively short time to get an overall assessment of a country in turmoil as is the case in Venezuela in 2017. But we need to remind listeners that you are certainly no stranger to Venezuela. You've been there both prior to and after the victory of Chavez. Perhaps you could first give us a, a brief potted history of your time in Venezuela prior to this year. Yeah, my name's Carl Winter. I'm just going to talk about Venezuela the present situation. I've had a long association with Venezuela. I lived there for two years in 1975. Um, and then I returned in 2006 and lived for a year, in which we wrote a book about Venezuela and the Chavez experience. And then we did brigades with the Australian Venezuela Solidarity Network every year since then, till 2012, when Commandante Hugo Chavez died in March 2013. So I went back this time, the end of August, for about a month. I was on a delegation organised by Venezuela Analysis, the webpage that does um, analysis, progressive information about events in Venezuela in English. Uh, They organised this brigade of 12 people, eight of them Americans and um, three from Belize in Central America and uh, one Australian. As you said, you arrived at the end of August. What did people tell you life was like before the Constituent Assembly changed everything? That was the 30th of July. How did people live through those those terrible months? What did they tell you? Well, they had some terrible experiences. They were quite frightening in a way. In one city in Barquisimeto, they cut down 3,000 trees and put, cut them across the highways and the uh, main roads so that nobody could pass. And that went on for two or three months. That was in the state of Lara because the governor of Lara is from the opposition. So he allowed all this to happen. And then people couldn't get to work. You couldn't um, go and study. So it meant all the universities have closed down for the last three months from April through to July when the Constituent Assembly took place. They were sort of kidnapped, you know, you were locked in your house, you couldn't go out to get food. And particularly one of the women told us it was really bad because she lived in Tatchara, 
the state which is on the border with Colombia, that's also an opposition mayor and governor. She was really scared because women, if you were by yourself, you couldn't walk past these, the Guramberos, they're called, who were um, the protesters, young men, some of them paramilitaries, and most of them paid, a lot of them on drugs. You couldn't walk past them because they'd yell at you or scream at you or, you know, interrogate you or um, stop you and threaten you. So it was quite scary for young women and people in general. And people did die. Yeah, there's been a total of 126 people were killed in those, in those three months uh, that occurred before the Constituent Assembly elections. Many of them black people. They burnt alive or burnt up to about 20 black people. One poor young guy was grabbed in Chacao, which is the east of the city of Caracas, one of the suburbs, again, run by an opposition mayor. And um, they accused him of being a chivista and set fire to him, and the poor young man died. So it, 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 it was mainly done, all this occurred mainly in middle-class areas, and so that really antagonised a, a large section of the middle class of, of the tactics of the opposition. Is there any idea who paid for all these men? Well, I was pretty sure it's uh, millions of dollars coming from the United States. A friend told me that since Trump got elected in the United States, they has given a lot of encouragement to the opposition. They think they can um, overthrow President Nicolas Maduro, who's been, who's been legally elected in 2013. And so the Garimbas uh, um, increased in, in the last um, six months. Um, but it's millions of dollars coming from the United States through the State Department. And in the last week I was there, the wife, Lillian Tintori, the wife of Leopoldo Lopez, who was in jail for 11 years for crimes against the government and, and terrorist acts, she had been caught with 200 million bolivars of um, cash to pay for the... Um, young men who were involved in the resistance and trying the Molotov cocktails and attacking maternity hospitals, etc. And so the, the, that was given to her by a private bank. So the CEO of the private bank has been charged and um, was, was in, in jail waiting trial. How far did you travel this time, Coral? Well, we um, spent the first three days in Caracas looking at um, community councils, but then... We went on a trip to Balavento, which is the east coast of Venezuela, where there's a huge African descendant population from the slaves who were brought there to grow sugar in the um, 16th, 17th century. There were apparently millions of slaves brought to that side of the, of the east coast of Venezuela. Um, and they've now done... It was very interesting... They've set up, Chavez, President Chavez set up a centre for African descendant um, studies and, um, back and, and their history. And they found that 70% of Venezuelans actually have African blood or descended from Africans. Anyway, so we went there and we saw a cacao uh, factory and also a plantain factory. And then after that, we went to Barquisimeto in the state of Lara, which is on the west side of Caracas and stayed at two large latifundias, or fincas, they're called, you know, big, huge farms. Farming what? Uh, well, one was really interesting. It was in Bacchus and it was 
land given to the MST, the Movement Without Land from um, Brazil, to cultivate this area because it was just owned by a very rich millionaire Venezuelan who was doing nothing with the land. And so Chavez gave, him the, gave them, this group, the land to cultivate whatever they needed to do. And they have regenerated the land. It was absolutely in no state for growing food. It had been poisoned with pesticides from growing a little bit of sugar and really damaged. So they have now re-fertilized it and were growing, were, had managed to generate, or not generate, but save a corn, a, a species of corn um, it's called, I think, Genoa corn, which was native to Venezuela, and it was a brighter yellow. And uh, there was only 40 kilograms of seed left of this particular native corn, and they've managed to grow it. And they thought they'd lost it all because there was a big heavy rain in Lara um, the month before they were going to harvest it. And But because this corn has not been inbred and it was not genetically modified, which they were getting from the United States, um, this corn species managed to survive the heavy rain and they were really, really pleased. And so they were showing us these 100 acres of corn that had they, they had changed and also they were growing uh, lots of pawpaw and other uh, fruits and orchard products yeah, and vegetables. Is there much urban farming in Caracas and other towns? Well, they're trying to. They're trying to reorganise all that, but it's just taking a lot of time because you have to find the right managers to organise it and um, to pursue it. It's all been worked out better if the community councils and the communes have got involved in the running of these cooperatives and these large um, estates that have been abandoned by the wealthy. I went to another one called El Mazal, also in Bacchus and they had a 1,000 hectares that they were also now growing coffee and again corn but they were had bought corn to be nice as GMO form and but they had now managed to make enough funds to grow their own their own and uh, the native corn so they weren't going to have to buy um, GMO corn from US the next year and but they also had a hundred head of cattle and the owner there he abandoned it well he he wasn't um he was just living in Miami they weren't growing any food on that land and the farmers and um, the, the peasants who were working that property just took it over when he... Well, Chavez negotiated with him. He had you know, to try and um, get a fair price. He wasn't interested, and so the workers took it over, and they're now running it with, in, 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 together with a, some, a piggery, a huge piggery of 1,000 pigs, also supplying gas, cheap gas, and also supplying water, uh, cheap water, or free water to the schools and hospitals. About the only media we have here in Australia over the last months, or the main part, has been talking about food shortages. What did you find? Well, look, there is, unfortunately, there is a food shortage. It's not that there's no food. It's that people can't afford it because this is really the basis of the um, attacks on Venezuela. It's an economic war to destroy the economy and to destroy their currency. So I went to a market in um, La Pastora and also in Caracas, one of the suburbs, and it was full of food, but it's just so expensive. Like inflation, initially under Chavez in 2012, there was five bolivars for one US dollar. Now it's 20,000 bolivars for one US dollar. 
and I had the experience of the inflation myself because I went to I bought an empanada, which is their you know one of their Venezuelan foods, just a cheese pastry thing. On Saturday it was two thousand five hundred bolivars, and then on Tuesday when I went back to get another one for breakfast, it was two thousand eight hundred bolivars. They've got money exchange houses on the Colombian border with um, Venezuela and also on the Brazilian border with Venezuela. And these exchange houses are artificially putting up the price of a dollar for uh, every, a bolivar every, every day. And that's what the, the stallholders and the companies inside Venezuela are using as their gauge. And so it, it just goes up every day. It's, it's just totally inflationary. On top of that, I, you couldn't use any credit cards, so it made sort of living there really, really difficult. Would not accept foreign credit cards you know, from any bank here. And also there's no cash. You can't get hold of any cash because what has happened is that the capitalists and the foreign agents in Brazil and in Paraguay and in Colombia have stolen the cash. There was 25 tons of paper money found in the capital Asuncion in Paraguay, plus $200 million worth of 100 Bolivar notes found in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. So there's an attack on the currency, the actual paper money. So people have money, but it's in their bank accounts. And so you can only go and shop where doll holder or in the market, which will use a machine to take money out of your, out of your bank account. That's what they did in the Soviet Union. That's why the Soviet Union collapsed, a friend told me, because they had virtually stolen all the paper money and, and the government had no money to deal with to pay for anything. So that's what they're trying to do in Venezuela. It's an it's a, a economic war against the government to try and bring down. And it's obvious because, you know, you've now removed 23 million people in Venezuela from U.S imperialism and from exploitation by US imperialism. So they have to bring it down. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time, Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Coral Winter, recently returned from a month in Venezuela. What can the government do to counter some of this? It's sort of like a very difficult, complicated problem. When I was there, Nicolas Maduro, the president, put on... 50 items, key items of food and put a, a, a set price on those food items so that it couldn't be sold at an exploited price. But then what happens to counteract that? The capitalist class there uh, hoard those items so you can't find them anywhere to buy them because they're at a fixed price. The other solution Nicolas Maduro is talking about is going off the US dollar He's going to try and use either Chinese currency or Russian currency to try and counteract this problem. It's really difficult. And there was an article in one of the newspapers there which said that the government had given out $25 billion worth of US, billion US dollars to capitalist companies to buy and import, you know, especially medicine and some, some essential foods. And they had just taken that money and banked it in their accounts in the U.S. or in, in European bank accounts and not imported the material. So, you know, this whole thing about there not being enough medicines is because these companies have exploited the situation to make themselves rich and have taken the 
dollars, which the government has given them at a very low rate, say 3,000 bolivars for one US dollar, when the rate is 20,000, and just banked the money and not imported the goods. So that's $25 billion have been lost to the economy over the last couple of years. What about wages for the workers? How are they being paid? They're trying to counteract the inflation by increasing the wages. And when I was there just a couple of days before I left, Nicolas Maduro had increased the wage by 40% to counteract this effect. But it's probably not enough. But on top of that, when he does increase the wages and all the the oligarchs do is just sack people in the workplace and say they can't afford them and make the people who do remain do twice the amount of work to make up for the person who's been sacked. What's happened to the various missions that have been in progress for many years? Well, they're still going. That, that's one of the incredible efforts of the Maduro government, that he has not cut the funding to the missions and to the um, social organisations and to the community councils and the communes. He's, he's kept that money there to whatever they're getting from oil exports. They've kept that, they're paying for that money and, um, you know, they paid out that money. But it was really furious, people were furious about the money I mentioned that was found in Lillian Tintori's jeep because that money came from a private bank and they were supposed to pay out pensions to in cash to the pensioners because they know anyone over 60 has a pension and that, and, he, and the bank was saying they didn't have the cash but that was why so yeah the missions are still going and they're trying to counteract this and, and it'll be the solution to this problem I think massive problem is for the communes and the community councils and for the cooperatives to start producing goods and, and to make that a, a certainty and but they need time to do that. They need time to reorganise themselves and time to get um, the materials within Venezuela to do that. You see, the imperialist countries, US in particular, will not give them any imports to start making things, to start producing them. None of the raw materials. That's another problem why everything comes to a stop. They've nationalised particular industries, but when that happens, they generally stop producing anything because they can't get the raw materials, and that's because of the block by the US imperialism. What about support from other South American countries coming into Venezuela? There's been a, a big blow against uh, the US and Canada for, because they used to control the OEA, the Organization of American States. But because Venezuela gave cheap oil to all the West Indian states, they support Venezuela. There's 15 votes. Each country within the OEA has a vote, no matter how small they are, even Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, all those islands. And because Chavez was so generous with those West Indian islands, they get a vote. So there's 15 votes in support of Venezuela, plus the votes from Nicaragua, El Salvador, Ecuador and Bolivia will always vote for Venezuela. So they've got a majority, so they can't push things through the OEA anymore. The United States can't do that. But it's really unfortunate that Canada last week also announced sanctions and, and a block, economic blockade of Venezuela under the, the wonderful Trudeau, who can be, um, who's not so wonderful. And also last week, um, the United States government also increased sanctions against more Venezuelan officials um, in, in the United States. So 
they're coming under enormous amount of pressure. And we, you know, the, our duty is to defend Venezuela. You know, they've made mistakes, of course, and that's been difficult. And I would now even begin to think about how you would solve this problem, the economic problem. I'm not an economist. But we have to recognize that this is a war against Venezuela because they have to destroy it. Because Venezuela is the linchpin of all these uh, changes that took place in Latin America over the last 20 years. Is there any support coming through trade with China and Russia? Yes, there's a lot of trade with, with, with um, China. Uh, and a lot of trade with Russia. With China, they've managed to get support for a satellite so they can monitor what is happening within the Venezuelan borders. They've also, China has agreed to build an oil refinery in China so they can refine their own oil, and that oil will belong to um, Venezuela. In addition to that, with the satellite, they're handing over the technology to Venezuela. There was no other country that would do that that would hand over the technology to Venezuela. So it was only China who would do that. And so they've been able to, they've got a team of, uh, I think, about 50 or 40 Venezuelan technicians in China learning those skills and, and, that tech, and getting a hold on to that technology. I should mention, you know, it's really disappointing also that within the OEA that Chile under Bachelard voted against Venezuela and uphold the... Um, motions that the United States put forward that there should be sanctions against Venezuela. So that was a real disappointment uh, from Bachelard in, in Chile when they had undergone such horrendous experiences under the dictatorship of Pinochet. Well, it doesn't look too good then from what you're saying with the election coming up soon. Well, no, it's going to be very difficult. Um, I hope that the government, Maduro government, can win more of the governorships and there's only there's only two governors um in venezuela at the moment who are run by the opposition at state of miranda and then the state of tachara um and, and also lara sorry three but it's really on a knife edge venezuela is really suffering there is starvation i saw people going through the garbage to get food and clothes whatever was left there in, in the garbage which is really sad to see so it really is really, really difficult, and Venezuela needs our support. There's a massive international campaign against them, you know, through Europe, the United States, Spain in particular, um, and even England, and, um, yes. And so we really have to give the, them our much support. We have to... They, they are losing the international media campaign, Venezuela, because it's um, the media... Even in Australia, so horrendous what they show. They don't talk about the terrible things that are happening and the murders and the killings by the resistance. That's really terrorist acts of, terror of terrorism by the resistance and the opposition. You know, I've been heard of a nurse who, when a Chavista went to the hospital in, it was in the state of Vargas, because, because of his wounds, a nurse injected him with a poison, a toxin. To, you know, so she's been jailed. But um, you don't hear about any of this. Also, the doctors and nurses in one of the country, in the regional hospitals in the state of Lara have been stealing the um, equipment and medicines that have been needed for cesareans because they've been given to poor people, you know, for, um, to, to help during the operation. They've been stolen by doctors, put them in their bag and taken away to their private practice. I mean, that's horrendous. You don't hear about that in the mass media. Just 
talk for a couple of minutes about the impact of all this on the, the other members of the delegation, the ones from Belize and the US. Did they have any idea of the situation before they went? Well, it was probably, probably a mixed understanding. I, a couple of the older delegates there from had, had some one had a lot of experience with Nicaragua and another um, in sort of um, movements social movements in the United States they were well aware of it but I think the younger people um, especially from Belize and also a, a four or five of the younger people from the United States who were um, descendants of um, Latin American exiles they had no idea and so they were really, really impressed with the visits to Balavento and Caracas and the community organisations and in Barquisimeto and were really, really impressed with what the government is trying to do, how we're trying to change the concept of government, how we're trying to change um, the, um, what really is and deepen our understanding of what really is democracy. Everybody has a say in what goes on in their, in their life, you know, from... All, all different aspects. So they were really, really impressed, and I think it's the first time they had an experience of a totally different way of organising society. Yes, it was really, really a good experience for everybody all round, and I deepened my understanding of, of what was happening in Venezuela. And, and of course, I'm trying to give as many talks as I can about the situation and to try and um, make sure that the left take, you know, a, a, a good attitude to a, a defence, a, a very strong international solidarity and of support for Venezuela and the government. They're really under a siege. Coral, is a, it has been a, a bit negative, this interview. Can you talk about one particularly inspiring story or person that you spoke with? Well, look, the community council, look, yes, my friends in Katia, they are wonderful. They're the backbone of this movement. They're poor working class, have worked all their lives really, really hard. They sat me down and said, you know, <laughs> Carl, 70% of the population are chavistas. They'll stick with it. They're not going back to what they suffered before Chavez came on the scene in 1998. He said they've had big demonstrations. A lot of it were young people who came to the demonstrations in support of the government, all full of red shirts, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who attended. They're ready to put their life on the line if things go bad. You know, they're, re they're prepared to die for what they've been able to achieve in the last a few years. They said the young people, they don't want to go back. They don't want to be selling, you know, knickknacks and plastic items, <laughs> cheap goods on the street to make a living. They know that what's at stake is an education for them to have a, a good job that's meaningful and a reasonable wage and opportunities. They know that, so they're not going back to what it was in the 80s with 90% of people in, living in poverty. But no, they were really, really positive. They told me, look, Coral, if there's anything you don't understand or you're not really I'm sure what's happening here, give us a ring, we'll tell you. So that was really, really good. My, my, my good friends in Cuddy, they said... There was one guy who came into Katia to try and cause, a, a, you know, a fire across the streets or, you know, chaos and, um, and, and a violent action, and they just chased him out. And they never appeared there again. It's the middle-class areas that have been attacked. That was really lovely meeting them again. And thanks to Coral Winter, activist and author. And it's coming up to 5.43.
This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Regular listeners to the program will remember Dr. Margie Beavis, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, speaking about a planned venture between Australia's celebrated Royal Flying Doctor Service and Elbit Systems, Israel's biggest arms manufacturer, and that she had written to the Royal Flying Doctor Service Board on behalf of MAPW, protesting the move which would totally discredit the organisation for aligning itself with Israel's biggest arms manufacturer, one of the world's most aggressive promoters of the use of drones in warfare as well as population control and is directly involved in the military aggression against the Palestinian people in the occupied West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. I spoke yesterday with Ahmed Salem a committee member of the Palestine Support Network Australia, which was part of the campaign against the venture. Ahmed, when did you learn about the proposed venture between Albert and the Royal Flying Doctor Service? There could be more than one source of uh, news, really, but the one that uh, I can remember is an article in Sydney Morning Herald where it says Royal Flying Doctor Services gets an 18 million boost and within that, of course, not all of them are from uh, Elbait. Uh, within that, there is the news about uh, Elbait system to open new training uh, center to provide the latest simulation and training equipment at its base in Dabo. Uh, they talk about real flying doctor's base, of course. So in Elbait system in particular was providing the simulator for the pilots to be trained on uh, this particular aircraft, which uh, Royal Flying Doctors uses, which is uh, Beechcraft, I think, Air King, it's called. What was your first reaction when you heard this news? We were so shocked, of course. <laughs> you can imagine how you can feel when such iconic, prestigious, loved uh, non-profit organization goes in partnership or has any kind of uh, dealings, transaction dealings with an arm manufacturer which has notorious uh, reputation about manufacturing arms that causes death when one iconic uh, non-profit organization or what is about is saving lives goes in partnership with a company manufacturing, uh, arm manufacturing company that has its profit model based on war. Obviously, it's unethical and not welcomed by any person who has any uh, human rights passion or think about uh, the ethics of such a deal. Talk a bit more about Albert and what their track history is. Well, we did research. We know about it before. Elbit is one of the biggest arms manufacturers in Israel. And we did a lot of research and we found quite few disturbing information it has provided 85% of drones used by Israeli army in attacks on Gaza. There were three wars, as you may know, between 2008 and 2014. These drones, different models of them, were one of the main 
equipments used to kill, including civilians, by not by my uh, words, but by international organizations. And also, uh, it has been reported that, uh, in fact, Elbit systems themselves, in one of their financial uh, reports, say one of their subsidiary produced white phosphoric material, which is illegal uh, by international law as well, and that has been used as far as we understand. Did your network contact the board of the Flying Doctors with your concern about the impact this would have on their health and human rights image? We certainly did. That was, in fact, the very first action we've done. We wrote a letter to Royal Flying Doctors. We would like to believe that Royal Flying Doctors, such prestigious, iconic, again, Australian entity, wouldn't go in partnership with such um, a company, arms manufacturing company, and we would like to believe that they didn't know, so that was the first action. They were slow in replying, I must say, and it's not only us. When, if you research, we can find, you can find a lot of people, really, people from different walks of life who have expressed concern about this partnership. But unfortunately, we didn't hear much, so the next step was to do an online petition and there was about 900 people who signed the online petition. Including doctors? Well, when that also we didn't hear answer, we did few other things. Then we designed a postcard and had about 400, 500 people signing the postcards and posted them also to the Royal Flying Doctors. We still haven't heard then we asked a few medical doctors who were also very concerned about this partnership to write to the executives of Royal Flying Doctors. And almost at the same time, we've asked a few MPs who we know are human rights advocates to write to Royal Flying Doctors and voice their concern. And it seems after that, Royal Flying Doctors, look, they may have still really, I don't know what behind the scene, I can't tell, but only after that there was an official letter from them for one of the MPs saying this has never really materialized. It was only a process of tendering when Elbit's uh, uh, name was up in the, in the media, but we never had any contract with them, and we are seeking other alternatives at the moment. And how long after did you get this reply, or did you have this message it didn't take long, in fact, between the letter from the MPs and the reply to one of the MPs who, who was on the, uh, on the letter, who signed the letter. It was quite quick. They first requested a meeting, they clarified their position, and then they sent a letter saying, we are not going with this anymore. Did you also speak to representatives of the New South Wales government about we their did. visit? We did. In fact, there was a question by a Greens MP to the Minister of Resources, I presume. I just checked it, in fact, and uh, he asked a few things about this deal, but the answer was very short and didn't deal with the concerns and said New South Wales government is proud to, to be in partnership with Royal Flying Doctors and Elbey to proceed. So we were not really sure what's happening there. I presume, I'm guessing, I really don't know, that 
12 flying doctors in one hand, of course, they went to progress with having state-of-the-art simulator training the pilots, but on the other hand, they were, I presume, I hope to think that they were contemplating the ethical backfire of, for such a deal. And I, I would like really at the end of the day to thank them, so thank them really for their commitments to their guidelines and ethical standards by uh, revoking the deal. It's not right. And what many people would not know is that Albert has been in Australia for a number of years now and has actually got contracts with the Defence Force here in Australia and the AFP. They do. They do. I, from a quick uh, research, it seems to me they have really uh, contracts with hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe $180,000 million, I think. And uh, it is sad. It is very sad that uh, we get such... Uh, our manufacturer who uh, who they who market their products as to be combat proven uh, in fact one page on their site said they have been field tested but they seem they have withdrawn this page like it is what can you say this is a company again that is commercially uh, based on model uh, profit model based on war and it is it is unfortunate that we deal with such a uh, producer, regardless of where it is from, whether from Israel or any other uh, country, uh, because uh, we, we... Royal Flying Doctors is saying, sorry, I come back to Royal Flying Doctors uh, uh, and say, they said that it's not political, and we would like to respect that and say, fine, that's not, uh, doesn't matter for us. We hope it is based on ethical background and that's good enough for us it's fine when you use that term field tested that means tested on palestinians mainly doesn't it i presume of course that's the clear uh, that's the clear case because it has been used by uh, like uh, credible reports from many sources in gaza in the three wars at least we are sure of that now this is a victory for bds how does it fit into bds Again, I would like really just to be respectful to Royal Flying Doctor's desire to talk about this outside the BDS. It is against the ethical guidelines of the Australian community, of the community who loves Royal Flying Doctors as a non-profit organization that saves lives, and we are happy with that, let alone the BDS. If you like me to talk about the BDS, I'm happy to. But I, in respect to Royal Flying Doctor's desire to say this is not political, we are happy with that. That's fine. Yes, I'm happy with that, but I would like you also to talk a little bit about BDS. Okay, uh, no problem at all, because uh, Palestine Support Network Australia, which I am a member of, does uh, mainly have its uh, the boycott, divestment and sanctions as its, end as, sorry, as its main mission. And, uh, well, the boycott, divestment and sanctions has been a call by 170 Palestinian organizations in 2005. And this came after the Palestinians under uh, occupation have tried all ways of struggle, including uh, peaceful negotiations, negotiations which we can at least mention since uh, Oslo uh, Accords and 20 years have resulted not to nothing. 
the opponents are saying we want to negotiate, but at the same time they are building settlements and subjecting the Palestinians to incredible uh, oppression. So there was no other means for them except to, in, to, except to follow this model which has been carried out in South Africa, as you know, successfully. And uh, with that, uh, there, it's been growing really rapidly. I think any person who doesn't have his, uh, who doesn't have washed mind, who has shred of conscious, would really accept to uh, this code. The opponents are trying to say this is anti-Semitic uh, movement, and that's of course nonsense because there are so many Jews around the world who support this, uh, this global campaign uh, with full heart. So it has nothing to do with religion; it has to do with Israel policies. And as I said, growing, and there are there has been great successes in so many international camp campaigns. For example, Veolia, G4S. Orange, these are huge, big multinational companies which have sold or at least declared they are about to sell their business in Israel, let alone artists, uh, academicians, uh, scientists, all kind of um, professions and industries when they really believe in the, in the real reason and genuinity of the BDS call, they do uh, join and support the Palestinians to get their independence. And Israel and its supporters do like to put forward the view that it's not really working, it's not biting at all, but on the other hand, they're cracking down on BDS, not only in Israel, but in other countries of the world where they're supporting Israel. I think you're absolutely right. How, on one hand, you say it's not working, but on the other hand, you try to promote a very false argument that this is anti-Semitic. Secondly, as you say, there is now a fierce legal campaign to uh, put laws against BDS in the Western countries, USA, and some European countries. And to my knowledge, there is like small ministerial committee headed by the Prime Minister in Israel to deal with BDS. So if it wasn't effective, why would you worry? Okay, well, we can hope for more victories for BDS and also congratulations to the Royal Family Doctor Service. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you. Bye. And that was Ahmed Salam from the Palestine Support Network Australia speaking about the Royal Flying Doctor Service and their former connections with Elbit, Israeli war machine makers who try out their, their war machines on the Palestinian people. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Done by Law will be here in about one minute's time, but I'll say bye for now and um, see you then. Bye.